Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The coronavirus pandemic and measures taken by our government to reduce the spread of the disease have resulted in a very challenging time for our communities. In addition to disrupting the lives of employees, employers, students, and our entire community, the response to the coronavirus pandemic has had a significant impact on the criminal justice system. From policing to court operations to the treatment of those in custody, the criminal justice system has had to adapt to this new reality of social distancing and the need for heightened health safety measures. Earlier this month, Governor Roy Cooper declared a state of emergency in North Carolina in response to the emerging public health threats posed by the novel coronavirus. And in a March 13th order and March 15th memo, Sherry Beasley, Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, limited the operations of the North Carolina courts for 30 days to prevent the transmission of the virus. On this evening's show, we're gonna talk about the impact COVID-19 and the government's response to the disease is having on our criminal justice system. We have joining us for this conversation, James Williams, former Chief Public Defender for Orange and Chatham Counties, and Caitlin Finnegan, Director of the Orange County Criminal Justice Resource Department. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, James, let's start with you. You were the Chief Public Defender for Orange County and Chatham Counties for more than 25 years. And even in your retirement, you continue to advocate for the rights of those involved in the criminal justice system. Can you first let us know what led you to your interest in criminal justice? Well, I I think my interest in criminal justice is a a result from my my background in terms of, uh, you know, where where and when I was born and what I was exposed to, uh, you know, in the 1960s as part of the civil rights movement in my little hometown of Plymouth. Um, It was there that I, I first had the opportunity hear uh, someone who who had a significant impact on my life, and that was uh, Floyd McKissick, who um, was taking part in the nonviolent training event uh, in eastern North Carolina in Edgecombe County. And I heard him speak with so much passion and vigor, uh, and I knew that he was part of an effort to change the reality, the lived experiences uh, and uh, injustices that black people face in this country. And I found out that he was a lawyer and that sort of planted the seed kind of early on, but not so much in doing criminal defense, but later as an undergrad at Duke University uh, in 1969, 1970, there was the killing of 
of a young black man in, uh, in, in Oxford, North Carolina, Henry Merrill. Uh, and basically because he supposedly says something smart to a white clerk or the wife of a power broker, a white power broker there in Oxford, he was shot down and killed in the streets of Oxford. Uh, there was a trial, even though there was no dispute about the fact that he did it. Uh, you know, jury, all white jury basically found him not guilty. And then the next year, we have the Wilmington 10 and then the Charlotte 3, then the trial of, of um, Angela Davis in California, all involving the use of the criminal justice system to either prosecute people who were trying to improve our society and reduce racial prejudice um, or you know uh, the 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 taking of life of black people and nobody being held accountable so i saw how the criminal justice system was being used as a tool of oppression and suppression uh, so when i finished law school you know criminal defense was really not something that i wanted to do not so much because I didn't think it was important. It was because I had questions about whether I had the right skill set to represent a person whose life was on the line and liberty was at stake. So I did civil work at Farm Workers Legal Services. It was only after two or three years of doing that that Evan Ross, who was an assistant public defender in the Mecklenburg County Public Defender's Office, convinced me that I should at least give criminal defense a try, and I did, and uh, it's been my path ever since. All right. Thank you for that. And Caitlin, you are the director of the Orange County Criminal Justice Resource Department. So can you tell us how you became involved in criminal justice and tell us about the CJRD, what the organization does, how it serves the community? Sure. Um, well, I came at this work um, very differently than James, as you can imagine. Um, I actually uh, was um, raised overseas, um, born in Africa, and lived most of my young life overseas um, until coming to North Carolina um, at the end of high school. I, unlike James, always knew I wanted to do criminal defense work. I wanted to be a public defender since I was, um, I think, in middle school. I had an uncle who was a public defender in San Francisco who I, I idolized. Um, so it was um, something I knew I was going to do from a very early age. So I um, went to UNC and UNC Law School, graduating in 1994, went to the Philadelphia Public Defender's Office, practiced there as a public defender, and then moved to the Bronx, um, was a public defender at the Bronx Defenders for a few years, then decided I wanted to do capital work, so came down to North Carolina, returned to North Carolina again, and um, worked for the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, doing some post-conviction work for a couple of years, decided I missed trial work. Um, James um, was willing to hire me at the Orange County Public Defender's Office, and I came and worked there for uh, five years before going to the Capital Defender's Office um, and was the Deputy Capital Defender there for 
um, eight years. Um, and around 2015, James contacted me. Of course, you know, once you work for James, you always work for James um, to some degree. So uh, James contacted me about um, the fact that the Orange County commissioners were thinking of creating a criminal justice resource department. Um, and I had already started getting into some policy work at the Capitol Defender's Office. Um, so I was interested in, in this position, um, trying to sort of work from the front end on criminal justice reform issues instead of sort of at the very end in a capital case where sometimes all the best you can hope for is um, saving somebody's life, um, which is incredibly important. But um, there's so many things that impact people um, from an early age um, in the criminal justice system. So. Um, the commissioners decided to create the, pro, uh, the department specifically to look at reducing pretrial incarceration rates and looking at expanding and enhancing um, various court programs, such as our two drug treatment courts, um, our pretrial release program, um, and then expanding into other ways that they felt the county could support criminal justice reform. So it was a really exciting opportunity to work in a really uh, progressive county that was really devoting itself to um, working on these issues on the on the front end and of course on the back end as well because we now house the local reentry council two positions there we also have pre-arrest diversion program we also have a restoration legal council position so we've now gone from a staff of three to 11 so we're really excited about the work we're able to do here with our partners and stakeholders now are there other counties that have a similar department and was Orange County, if yes, uh, was Orange County one of the first? There are several counties that have them. Um, Buncombe County has a criminal justice resource center. Durham has a criminal justice resource center um, and New Hanover has one. I think that might be it. Um, they all created sort of differently with different intentions. For instance, Durham's originally was to assist with probation support services. It's of course expanded greatly since then, but so they've all, they all are created by the county, but sort of with different intents in mind. All right. Wonderful organization. So let's, um, in talking about how our current reality is affecting our community, specifically those who are involved in the criminal justice system or incarcerated. I wanted to first kind of talk about law enforcement and policing of the communities. Uh, James, let's start with you. What are your thoughts about how our current reality, the whole notion of social distancing has changed the way communities, particularly um, marginalized community or at-risk communities are being policed now? Well, you know, I think one of the one of the things that this pandemic uh, that we are forced to address, I think, um, sharpens is the fact that the number of things that are that we're asking and we have to do differently. Some of those things we should have been doing differently all along. Um, so, I mean, obviously, from the standpoint of policing, for instance, uh, one of the things that that is being encouraged that police departments do differently is to reduce the number of unnecessary contacts with the public. Uh, so, for instance, 
you know, the police, uh, police officers have the discretion uh, in, in a number of cases to either arrest somebody, take them into custody, take them before a magistrate, um, and, or to issue citations. Um, and so the difference is that you know, with the citation, the person is not taken into custody. They are not processed into a jail. They do not have to post bond. Um, and so when, when we're looking at this pandemic, one of the, one of the things, necessary uh, things that has to happen is we have to reduce the number of people going into the jail in the first place. And so that's one way. Also, when we talk about marginalized communities and, and, and black communities in particular, you know, police officers have a lot of discretion. Uh, they exercise that discretion every day in terms of not just who to arrest, but also who to stop, who to engage, uh, you, know, you know, based upon that person's driving or based upon the fact that that person might look a little suspicious. And I think, you know, they're being asked to not unnecessarily stop and detain people where there's no real, you know, a public safety issue at play. And we know based upon policing studies that have been done, not just in North Carolina, but around the country, that, uh, that, that, that black people uh, and people of color are stopped have been traditionally stopped disproportionately for traffic offenses. Once they're stopped, they have been disproportionately detained and searched, things of that nature. They've been stopped more frequently for what we call regulatory offenses, which, which don't really pose any public safety hazard. So those types of things, departments are being asked to scale back. Now, some of those things they have been asked to scale back before, just based upon efforts to reduce racial disparities within our criminal justice system. Uh, but I think this pandemic is further reinforcing the need that you know we can have a smaller criminal justice footprint and be just as safe, uh, you know, as we are probably more safe with this whole, what we call mass incarceration. So, so those are just some examples of, you know, and I'll mention one other thing too. Law enforcement quite often can have an impact uh, traditionally in even setting of, of, of the conditions of pretrial release based upon what they say to a, a magistrate or a judicial official uh, so those types of things also, um, I think they can take into consideration or should be taken into consideration, you know, as we look at how we can reduce the risk of this uh, COVID-19 uh, disease to not just, you know, people who they detain, but to the, the general public generally. All right, Caitlin, what are your thoughts about how the policing of communities has changed given the uh, need and desire to limit the transmission of the coronavirus? 
Yeah, I think um, what I agree with everything that James said. I mean, there has been an, uh, just an incredible sense of urgency amongst everyone, law enforcement included, as you know, we have pretrial policy, our pretrial policies state here that a, a citation or a summons are the presumption. Um, but I think until now, I'm not sure that, that all of our law enforcement was operating under that, that uh, presumption. And we were seeing, I think, arrests when we didn't need to have arrests. Um, so it's, um, I think it's several of our law enforcement agencies, particularly the Sheriff's Office, the Orange County Sheriff's Office and the Chapel Police Department have issued some guidelines for um, deprioritizing lower level offenses during this period and certainly um, reducing contact, unnecessary contact on calls. So they've literally put that in writing. So I think we're going to see a, a decrease um, in people coming in and we've seen very, very few people coming into our jail in the last two weeks. So I think that's a credit to our policy being actually uh, implemented effectively and our magistrates also taking um, a strong interest in making sure that they're not um, setting um, secured bonds on anyone um, unnecessarily. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with James Williams, former Chief Public Defender for Orange and Chatham Counties, and Caitlin Finnegan, Director of the Orange County Criminal Justice Resource Department. And we've been talking about the impact the coronavirus pandemic and the government's response to the disease is having on justice-involved individuals and those who are incarcerated. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 1L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and these are your weekly announcements. Do you have questions or concerns regarding child custody or visitation orders? If so, please join the Virtual Justice Project on Wednesday, April the 1st, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 8 o'clock p.m. as they host an event tailored towards providing further understanding to these matters. On Wednesday, April the 15th, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 8 o'clock p.m., the Virtual Justice Project, in partnership with the Juvenile Justice Clinic, will host a tele-event regarding how to effectively wrap up your child's academic year. For more information regarding the law school and any of its upcoming events, please refer to the NCCU School of Law website at law.nccu.edu. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been your weekly announcements. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with James Williams, former Chief Public Defender for Orange and Chatham Counties, and Caitlin Finnegan, Director of the Orange County Criminal Justice Resource Department. And we've been talking about the impact the coronavirus pandemic is having on our community, particularly the criminal justice system. Caitlin, right before the break, you and James were talking about how our current reality has changed the way law enforcement is policing our communities, particularly our at-risk communities or our communities of color. 
And you both noted that there have been some priorities in terms of uh, discretion that's being exercised. How, Caitlin, how would you respond to inevitably some people who might be concerned about the reduction of people who are being uh, stopped? And so there may turn on some folks about the safety within their communities. It, does this change, this kind of shift from uh, limiting stops within our community? Does that place individuals at greater risk or less risk? I don't think so. Um, I think it, it presents all of our communities an opportunity to, to be at uh, less risk. Um, I think, you know, what's going to be prioritized and what is being prioritized is anything that is a public safety risk. Um, and whether that's property, whether that's physical safety, um, both of those are going to continue to be prioritized. What we are going to see probably deprioritized are um, things like simple possession, um, where there's not a victim other than the person themselves who may have a substance use issue, um, ordinance offenses, class two, class three misdemeanors, where there's not a victim. Um, we're just not going to see um, the risk of an interaction with law enforcement um, and those individuals where we might have previously, because it's a safety risk for both individuals, and it's not a risk uh, uh, um, to the community. So I don't think there's any need for anybody to fear that law enforcement isn't going to be using their discretion to um, do their uh, their duties uh, to protect the community at all. Um, but I do think people in communities that may have been traditionally and um, continuously um, over-policed may see um, that things um, become a little more equitable. Well, you know, one of the uh, uh, issues that has, uh, has arisen deals with the uh, policy for some departments to cut back on uh, police officers responding to uh, reports of crime in uh, various uh, neighborhoods unless there is an ongoing uh, emergency and are now uh, taking uh, criminal reports over the uh, telephone rather than actually going into the communities to uh, conduct uh, those uh, crime reports. Uh, the, and that has caused some concern by people. How, how do you, you know, how do you react uh, to that uh, kind of, and I, know, and I know that there's a value in less interaction on, on some level, but where there is uh, actual crime that's being uh, uh, committed, should the police uh, be uh, reluctant or uh, forestalled from going out to uh, investigate uh, these complaints of criminal activity? I'm not aware, and I'm not saying that they're not, I'm not aware of specific policies in place, certainly within by departments within our area, uh, and by that I mean the Triangle area, where officers are being told not to respond when they get calls about criminal activity, especially if the call is about something significant. Now, you know, obviously police officers get calls all the time about criminal activity. There's a suspicious person in my neighborhood or somebody's walking past my house and I don't think, you know, they look like they might be up to something. Those types of calls, they probably shouldn't have been responding to in the first place. 
because that's where you get disparate policing. That's where you get, you know, usually black people, especially black young men, shot and killed or injured because of these unnecessary interactions with police. Uh, and so those types of calls, I think you're going to see quite a bit of reduction in. I mean, and, and other possibly minor uh, victimless type uh, offenses that may somebody may may see or be calling about. But I doubt that you're going to have a department failing to respond when somebody says, you know, I'm being physically threatened um, or I see somebody, you know, breaking into somebody's home or something like that. I don't think that's going to be, I, I think policing is going to go on as normal in those types of circumstances. I'm not aware of any yeah. departments that are seeing. We're not going to respond to that. That's right. That's And I have seen some policies where it is, you know, where they would have otherwise responded in person to an incident that is long since over and is no longer presenting any safety issues. They may take that initial um, incident report by phone, but I don't think there's going to be a situation where they're not responding, where there's a, a crime taking place currently or there's evidence that needs to be collected or anything of that nature. And so... Chief Justice Beasley earlier this month issued an order limiting the operation of the, the North Carolina courts. Caitlin, can you talk about what that actually looks like? So when, what are the, the cases that will be uh, delayed or, or held over for, uh, at, at this point, I guess, you know, maybe uh, another couple of weeks, given our current circumstances that might be extended? So what should folks kind of expect in the event that they do receive a citation, just what's happening in the court systems right now? Sure, everything, um, uh, the, the order which issued, I think it was uh, effective March 16th, everything in district and superior courts, traffic courts, everything non-essential was um, is being continued for 30 days. I expect that that may end up being a longer continuance. Um, the Clerks were ordered to uh, contact everybody with new court dates after that 30-day period, which they have done. Um, and of course, there are people who may not get their mail, and so there's um, their court dates are also posted on the AOC website. You can also come into the clerk of court or call the clerk of court. They're still operating in, in every county at this point, so you can get your court date if you haven't been able to find it. But so everything non-essential was continued. Um, but what we are still doing every day is first appearances for people um, who have been uh, newly charged and bond motions and um, domestic violence matters. Um, those are still going forward. Um, and so, you know, there's also, in addition to the Chief Justice's order, um, there have been some uh, local uh, orders. And in, in, our, in our county, the uh, Chief District Court judge um, issued a uh, order that all payments that may have been due during this period, all payments due to the court um, were also continued. So there won't be any payments due during this 30-day period. And again, that may be extended as well, but that was an important addition to the Chief Justice's uh, order that came down. How, how has that uh, looked on the ground in terms of uh, the number of people actually coming into the uh, courthouse as a result of uh, the uh, uh, kind of emphasis now just on doing uh, first appearance, first appearances and uh, bond motions. 
it's very quiet here, <laughs> Professor Joyner. <laughs> I'm I'm at the courthouse. My pretrial case manager is here at the courthouse, and we have a judge coming in for about an hour every day. Our superior court judge is hearing um, bond motions uh, by WebEx, so not in person. Our public defender and district attorney are now doing first appearances by WebEx. Um, our folks that are in custody, and they're very few when they have a first appearance, it's on video. Um, and we have um, just very few people coming in in person other than to ask about a, a question they may have or if they have a first appearance and we they come in and out within about you know 15 minutes. So it's very quiet at the courthouse. Well, I understand that uh, the uh, court system in uh, both uh, Wake County and Durham County uh, have had uh, similar experiences uh, as a result of uh, the uh, cooperation between the district attorney's uh, office and the uh, judges uh, to uh, cut back and that that has uh, proven to be uh, beneficial in terms of the traffic uh, going through the courthouse. But how has uh, the uh, principals in the criminal process responded uh, to uh, Judge Beast's order? When you say the principals, you mean who are you referring to? The, the, um, the, the main people who are working in the courthouse, uh, the judges, the prosecutors, the uh, defense attorneys. Uh, how have they responded uh, to uh, Judge Beasley's cutback on the uh, activities or postponement of, uh, of, of activities in the uh, district and superior courts uh, over the next 30 day period? Well, Professor Jordan, I, I think I, for the most well, I think for the most part, they responded quite well. I mean, you have, I know in several instances, certainly within District 15B or District 18, Orange and Chatham, you know, as Caitlin uh, mentioned, you know, you have the, uh, the uh, resident um, Superior Court judge, uh, you know, uh, and the Chief District Court judge, you have Judge Fox and you have Judge Buckner, both who have issued orders related to the courts and the scaled down nature of those courts. And part of that is basically saying to one of those orders, saying to, uh, you know, both uh, attorneys, uh, the district attorney's office, and, you know, either witnesses or defendants that, um, that, that you don't have to come to court uh, during this period, uh, that if you have a case that somehow is calendared um, and you are sick or you have a fever or you're not feeling good, just call your uh, attorney or call the DA's office. That matter will be continued without you having to present a doctor's order uh, or notice. So I think there is great collaboration going on between all the parties. The district attorney's office, for instance, is involved in, you know, along with Caitlin and others, reviewing the jail list each day to help determine if there are people who are currently in the jail that can be released safely into the community. And that has worked extremely well. So, so, so I think that... I think there's good cooperation in attempting to implement uh, Justice Chief Justice Beasley's order. Now, there have been, 
some hiccups and some bumps in the road because some people have expressed concern about, for instance, um, you know, if there's a, a, a hearing or something that for whatever reason they feel needs to go go forward, uh, you know, whether or not this order is going to be, uh, you know, a barrier to that. And I think, you know, I think the parties involved have to sit down and talk and see if that can be worked through. If that's something that could be done by video, for instance, that sort of thing. If it's a trial that was already underway, the order excludes that. I mean, there's nothing that says that that trial can't go forward. Uh, I think there were instances where defense attorneys may have been concerned under circumstances that where it appeared the trial might take place, but they were concerned about whether or not uh, their client could get a fair trial if yours and others were concerned about their safety because of of uh, the coronavirus epidemic. And I know that there have been several instances where cases that were on the verge of trial were actually continued uh, because of that very thing. So I think on the whole, there's been very good cooperation by everybody involved in an effort to, um, because they want to be, I mean, (laughs) it's not, you know, the lawyers want to be safe also, I mean, everybody's concerned about, you know, this virus and how contagious it is, but not just that, how lethal it potentially is and the fact that there's no, there's no cure, uh, there's no vaccination. And so it behooves everybody to take all possible steps to protect uh, themselves and the public as it relates to this situation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the, you know, I think um, the clerks also need to be mentioned in in this as well, because, you know, I think they're they're, you know, as you know, our courts typically have all sorts of policies and and procedures that people are expected to abide by. For instance, we have a 24-hour bond motion um, requirement, um, a notice of 24 hours notice before a bond hearing. We've um, been able to. Um, do without that. We've been able to put on bond motions um, immediately with the help of the clerks and with the DAs and, and our judges and, and public defenders and pretrial. So I don't, I'm not aware of any cases um, that have had an urgent matter not addressed immediately during this period. And I'm also not aware of anybody who's been ordered to court or an order for arrest issued when they're during this period um, when, when we know that no questions are going to be asked if someone says they're sick and can't make it to court. So I think everyone really is operating under that sense of urgency and collaboration. And courts are not closed. I mean, so for instance, if there's something that has to be filed, um, that can still happen. Um, The clerk's office is still open. I don't know whether they have reduced hours or not. So it's not like a total shutdown uh, of of the court system. So, Caitlin, you mentioned that uh, in Orange County, uh, there were local orders that were issued and, and those orders, and I'm sure there are other counties as well that have done this in terms of um, no payment will be due on, on bonds. And you mentioned if there's a, a bond hearing. And, and my question kind of goes back to something that James was saying about law enforcement, that this situation has led to actually some changes that should have taken place you know, even prior to this. And so when we think about the court costs and fines and fees and the impact that that has 
on uh, communities of color. Are you seeing uh, a, an adjustment in terms of the amount of bond that's being set or whether there is a, a secured bond? Are we seeing that as a result, one of the, the byproducts of uh, the new court procedures and the, and the level of discretion that's being exercised? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been a lot of efforts underway already to address the the disparate impact of fines, fees, and costs in, in our court system here locally, as well as pretrial reform efforts. But I think, again, the, the order just extends those payments that are already in place. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, waive them or remit them at this point. So that's something that I think is going to be when we do get back into operation, full operation. I'm hoping that we look at that with even more um, immediacy to try and relieve some of um, the outstanding criminal justice debt that's only going to create a further um, burden on on people who are suffering after uh, this recession that is inevitably going to occur. Um, one other important local order that I think it's not just specific to Orange County, but um, Judge Fox did suspend all intermittent sentences, so all weekend sentences or people coming in for probation um, sentences. So all of those have been suspended during this period too. So there's nobody coming in and out of the jail um, on an intermittent sentence, which I think is is really critical. As far as um, who we're seeing in terms of um, pretrial, um, we have seen an incredible difference in the last two weeks um, in, in a reduction in people getting a secured bond. I mean, we've had um, a drastic reduction, and that's because the magistrates and the judges um, are working together along with the sheriff, who is very, very interested in keeping um, our numbers down um, for safety reasons. Um, and, you know, for instance, I compared numbers yesterday. We had 47 pretrial detainees. Two months ago, there were 80. So, I mean, it's almost cut in half, and, and that's um, testament to a lot of work on uh, and a lot of urgency on a lot of people. Uh, for a lot of people, but it's also um, something that we probably could have safely done two months ago if we'd all been applying, um, you know, the, the conditions as, as they should be applied. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we're talking about uh, co the coronavirus crisis and the criminal justice uh, system. We're going to take our break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, come back to continue this uh, this conversation. So we'll be right back. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, talk about a very important topic, and that is the uh, coronavirus crisis that uh, we are dealing with right now and the criminal justice uh, process. We've uh, talked about uh, the uh, court system and the police uh, departments and their responses to this uh, coronavirus. And uh, I know that many of you uh, have a lot of concern about, about that. But we want to kind of switch now to uh, the uh, Department of Corrections and prisons and the uh, incarceration, long-term incarceration of people. And uh, James, can you kind of talk about what is uh, happening in the uh, prison system with respect to uh, this uh, uh, effort to separate uh, out uh, people, the uh, distance 
uh, distancing of uh, individuals uh, from uh, each other in the system? And how, how is that working? Well, Irv, so first of all, I want to take a brief minute and put this in some national context. So, so we've got a, basically a, a disparate system of confinement in in this country. You got the American criminal justice system. I think there's roughly 2.3 million people in um, in state prisons and jails and federal prisons in this country, um, and you actually have 1,833 state prisons, 110 federal prisons. You got 1,772 juvenile correctional facilities, 3,134 local jails, um, and then you have 218 immigration detention facilities. So those are all places where people are being held uh, for criminal justice purposes, either because they are have been convicted and are serving a sentence or are being held pre-trial. As, as for those who are within the state prisons um, in North Carolina, I think they're roughly somewhere around 38,000 people. Uh, people within those facilities are probably the most vulnerable to uh, this uh, COVID-19 virus because the conditions of confinement make it almost impossible to practice social distancing, which is the major mitigation approach to protecting people from this virus. In addition, it's almost impossible to maintain the level of sanitation that is necessary to to make people safe. Uh, you know, our prisons is well known, I think, are are, are underfunded, understaffed. Uh, and I think it's those combinations of circumstances that many people say uh, and even experts say that prison, a, a, a prison is like a petri dish for the growth of this virus. Once it takes hope, it's going to spread like wildfire. And it's not a question of if, it's a question of when it does in a number of these facilities. And so, therefore, the urgency of taking action now and one of the most critical steps that can be taken as it relates to our state prisons is to depopulate, you know, allow the release of those people who are most vulnerable in particular, uh, who, who elderly, frail, uh, who basically served their sentence uh, and to make it easier you know, you can focus on those who are there uh, serving a sentence for a, a nonviolent crime. Uh, we need to get those vulnerable people out of our prison systems. And it's incumbent that the governor of the state of North Carolina take action right away 
because otherwise those people's lives that are going to be lost are going to be on his hands and he has the power to take action to do this so i'm i'm members of the public are going to weigh in on this issue and help convince him that the time is now for action to be taken there is as caitlin mentioned i am a part of a a collaborative group uh, i think the COVID um, justice collaborative that is comprised of a number of organizations or representatives of a number of organizations including the north carolina aclu forward justice the North Carolina Justice Center, Impact North Carolina, and two or three others that have, over the past week, developed uh, a number, sent a number of letters to our critical, our key stakeholders, including the governor, including the conference of DAs, uh, including the Department of, of Prisons, um, including the chiefs of police, and including uh, the Sheriff's Association alerting them to the critical nature uh, of this situation and giving specific recommendations to what they can do to help alleviate the situation. But, you know, at, at, the, at the prison level where uh, prisoners are under uh, set confinement uh, orders uh, from, from the court, uh, isn't the ability to administratively make changes in the length of uh, those sentences or uh, that these individuals are serving more difficult than the uh, making changes at the uh, pretrial uh, level and uh, affecting the bail process, uh, which is uh, much easier to do uh, than when you're dealing with people who have been uh, convicted and uh, sentenced to uh, to prison. It, sure, sure. It is it is more difficult, but it's also very doable. And I think this consortium of of uh, advocates that James is referencing has worked very hard to put a plan together for um, district attorneys to identify cases that. Um, might fall under a consent motion for appropriate relief that they could file. But of course, I think, it, you know, rather than trying to do it piecemeal with each district attorney, while that will help individuals in certain counties uh, with DAs who are willing to take that kind of action, um, we need to look at it more on a statewide level. It needs to be the governor who commutes these sentences where it's appropriate, where these people are in danger of losing their lives um, and, you know, I think another thing that's important to talk about is for the people who are going to remain incarcerated, whether it's pretrial or serving a state sentence, and the majority of people are going to remain in custody, what is going to be done to put in place um, safety measures and ensure that while visitation is now being um, eliminated, that they have contact with their attorneys, that they have free phone calls to be able to communicate with their families during this pandemic. I mean, other um, medical concerns and medical safety issues need to be put in place. So there's, so I want to look at it for both the people who should be getting out under the circum under the circumstances, but also for the people who remain in. And so, also, Caitlin is right. One of the things that happens if you depopulate or if you reduce the population, you can better address the needs and protect the lives of the people that you that you keep in 
uh, or and so and and the governor does have the authority to take more mass relief type actions and commutations is one of the one of the one of the tools in his toolbox and uh, you know he needs to be pressed to use that. The other thing you know that Caitlin mentioned and one of the things that we think is really important in terms of resources that should be provided adequate resources should be provided to sanitize and and to, to keep safe the people who um, are will remain confined uh, you know within those facilities and one of the things for instance it may be something as simple as alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizer I know the um, the uh, Department of Corrections or, you know, has a policy where they prohibit the, the use of alcohol-based hand sanitizers by people who, who are incarcerated in the North Carolina prisons. Um, but these are uh, unusual times that call for some radical action. And one of the things that even the Center for Disease Control in their guidance that they have sent to uh, prisons and jails is to say, you know, relax your, your rules against the use of alcohol-based hand sanitizers because those are the most effective, uh, you know, at, 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 at killing this, uh, this virus. And so those are changes that could be made at the administrative level you know, by the Department of Prisons itself. Uh, and so those are some of the things that we're saying you need to go on and do. And if you want to you know, change it back after this pandemic, you know, fine. But for right now, show some flexibility, show some compassion, save some lives and do what is right. Um, and, and so those are some of the things that we're asking for. And, you know, in addition to the humanitarian uh, viewpoint of this, uh, there's also the community at large because you've got, you know, people who actually work in these facilities. And yeah. if the coronavirus becomes a problem in these facilities, you've got people who are going in and out, which means not only is it going to be a problem in those facilities, but also the families of those people who are going in and out. Do you, James, you were saying that you hope that the public will be more vocal about the need for really rapid response to, to the current situation as far as um, our, our institutions. Do you feel as though the, the community has an understanding of this? And when I say understanding in terms of not just the risk, but also that what's not being called for is for anyone who's incarcerated to be let out and the public being um, at risk. Right. I do think I think that is a, a message that needs to be, um, you know, further and better developed. I think, you know, properly understood, the safer course is to do exactly what we are suggesting, not just for the sake of the people, you know, who are people who are incarcerated in in uh, in prison and serving sentences but for the greater public health as you mentioned there are a number of people who work within those facilities they are going in and out 
if they contract something, it's not going to just totally stay within. It's going to be, you know, disseminated through, you know, their families and their contacts and things of that nature. So I think it is in everybody, it is in the public's interest as a part of public health that, um, that we take these necessary measures um, to, to, as we say, de depopulate the, the prisons and then provide the adequate resources to the, the jail, the, the prison staff to, to maintain this level of safety that's required. I am not sure um, how they can practice social distancing, for instance, in a facility that's already overcrowded. By definition, it's not going to happen. Um, and so, uh, so we've got to take some of these steps. You know, it's in the best interest of, of of everybody concerned, including the general public. And you know, most of the people who we're talking about that will be released, they will be released. They're not just going to be dumped on the street. And I think this piece is important too. There are a number of organizations uh, and entities who are ready, willing, and able to assist with uh, reentry and transition plans so that the individuals who, who are released, you know, can more likely have a place to stay. If they need medical attention, they can receive that. If they need mental health assistance, housing, those types of things can be done as part of the transition plan. But we have to have those people at, at the top who are the quote deciders to make the courageous decisions to go on, not just courageous, the right decisions to, to, um, to allow this to take place. So we just have a few minutes left. Caitlin, I wanted to ask you, are you optimistic that some of the new perspectives that are being gained about our criminal justice system will survive even after this pandemic crisis is is over yeah i am um i have i'm i, I feel like what's going to happen is we're going to see that um people come back to court that um you know uh that people who were released that might have otherwise been held on a pretrial bond um have not gone out and committed any new offenses i think we're still doing smart pretrial decisions um, I don't think anybody's just opening the doors and saying, everybody go. I think there's a lot more case management that's going on. Pretrial supervision is being you know, implemented in a lot of cases, which in some ways is, is more uh, of a accountability uh, than, um, than sitting in jail, but it also enables a person to obviously continue at their work, be with their family. Um, so I think I'm hopeful that this will just uh, wake everyone up, um, that we can be applying pretrial reform safely um, for our community and um, that it makes all of us healthier and safer um, when we do so. And I just think it's really important to recognize just sort of as a last thing to say, um, we're all feeling so isolated um, in our stay at home or is but to be isolated and be incarcerated is, um, an incredible um, thing. And there are so many family members out in our community who have loved ones incarcerated. 
and to know that they are um, hopefully being taken care of if they have to remain in custody for safety reasons. Um, and I have access to free phone calls and free medical care and uh, legal communication, confidential legal communication in this, in this surreal time, um, I think um, will go a long, a long way. So yes, I'm confident. I hope that these reforms that we've all been pushing for for so long um, will, will become more comfortable um, after this awful period. All right. Well, we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, James Williams, former chief public defender for Orange and Chatham counties, and Caitlin Finnegan, director of the Orange County Criminal Justice Resource Department. And as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And we're happy to announce that you can now find this show on iTunes in podcast form. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged and be healthy and safe.